Hey, good morning. Again, it's great to not see you, but be with you digitally. And, you know, James and Jenny and Roy, whether you're watching now or listening later, I, I just want to say I think it's awesome and appropriate that you three have brought so much levity to the way that we gather over the years through the creative team. And I'm seeing God's grace in the fact that there's a little bit of normalizing of our lives by your comedic wit being brought to us just in that video. So thanks. So, you know, we started this series a few weeks ago, and I was going to kind of hash through some of the review pieces, but I don't, I'm not going to do all of that. I just want to start by reminding us that the irony of this series, which I suppose could be seen as a money series, but we said at the beginning, this isn't a money series. This is a generosity series, and it feels like eons ago that we started the series two weeks ago in this space here at Grand Street. And we started by saying, hey, we're doing this series because we exist on the shoulders of so many people who have made generosity, you have made generosity a part of your values and a part of your way of living. And quite frankly, the research would say that people who choose to, to lean into generosity, we, we need uh, new doses of encouragement. We need to be reminded. We need to have the, the why recast to us. We need to understand what's, what's the purpose of doing this. And so... Man, I hope this series is doing it, and quite frankly, I, I hope that, that this whole idea of corona is causing you to think differently and, and again about generosity and where it lands within your values. We also said then that if, you know, if you're someone that's sick and tired of being sick and tired, that if you have come to this realization that you work too hard to be broke and you wanted to begin to think through money stuff in a different way, that we hope this would help. And listen, it's not lost on me that especially if you're someone who's been laid off or your business has turned or just the industry is shut down right now in general or whatever that looks like, that if we're not careful, this could, could be an offensive kind of reminder of all that. And that's not at all what I want to do is create any kind of culture of shame. But all the same, I wonder if it's an opportunity to think through like, okay, so how, does, how am I going to think about and move towards money in the future? And then for those of you who've been intrigued, I know that one of the weirdest ways of Jesus is this way of generosity. And so if, if you're someone that's been watching people follow Jesus or even you yourself have, and then you've watched the bucket flow by and scattering events and you've just not really understood it all, our hope was that this series would put all that together with for you. Uh, here's what I want to do this morning, though, as we just think about generosity. Is I, I want to ask this question of, in light of coronavirus, what does it mean to be generous? Like, how do we move forward with these values in this particular context? And to jump into that, I want to talk about a story. Uh, this, this last October, when I started my own digital detox, I just finished reading The Hobbit to get ready for the, the series we did in January. But aside from that, I hadn't read fiction for quite a long time, and I hadn't read recreationally for a very long time. I've always loved to read, but of course, as it goes with jobs and hobbies, when your hobby becomes your job, then, then you lose a hobby. And I think for my part, over these last 10 years especially, my hobby of just reading at home, especially outside of my morning chair time, has, has, has gone away. And so I decided one of the hobbies I wanted to add was reading, but reading fiction. And so I went to the library, picked up some historical fiction by a guy named Jeff Shera. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he, he did, he's done a bunch of uh, historical fiction on American history. And the first series I read was one he did on the American Revolution. It's a two-part series. I think Tommy's read it since. It's, it's an incredible two-part series, very invigorating to read. And, and I think, quite frankly, when you're reading about the American Revolution, for better and for worse, there's a clear good guy and a clear bad guy, so it's, it's, it's really fun to read. So when I wrapped up that series, 
I went and I grabbed another one of his books that is the fir- was the first book of a three-part series on the Civil War. And to be honest, that, that quickly proved to be really dark, really heavy. Again, when you're reading about the Civil War, suddenly there is no clear villain, and just the horrendous nature of those moments became really, really clear. So it was still, it was still good to read, but I learned stuff that I, even as a history major, I, I'd never even thought about. One of those was that when the war first started, and this conflict began to, to, to happen, in the first few battles, like husbands and wives, moms and their children would show up for the battles. They would sit on high ground and they would watch them they, like they were some kind of Shakespeare in the park. The people themselves had no idea what they'd just committed to. And as they were watching these initial battles, people became horrified by what they were seeing. As they watched death, as they watched maiming, as they watched these events, over weeks and months, they became really, really clear on the fact that this isn't cute. This is horrible. And it kind of set in for everybody, this isn't ending tomorrow. This is going to be a battle. And so about four months in, after the North had been kicked around quite a bit and the South was very much in charge of the conflict, Abraham Lincoln made a very decisive decision as a very courageous leader. And and his decision was to replace the existing general of the North with a new general. So what Abraham Lincoln did is he put a guy named George McClellan in charge of of his army. And George McClellan was, he was the, the, the perfect candidate. Almost everybody agreed he's the guy who should be leading the army. He was a man's man. He, he was the perfect military man. His training had happened in places like Europe with this very sophisticated education. He was the symbol of confidence and self-assurance and of discipline. In fact, you know, his job was to take everyday men and turn them into soldiers. And they say that he was such an incredible trainer. His discipline was was so awesome that people would, again, go to the surrounding hillsides and they would watch as McClellan trained his men. He was perfect for the job. And as, as he continued to do his work, Lincoln did his own work. Lincoln's job was, was to raise support. And, and, and in just a few months after McClellan took over the army, the, the, North arm, the Northern army outnumbered the South by three to one. Not only that, but, but supplies were also much greater for the North and the South. And the general consensus in the community was that the North's advantage was their larger army and that what they ought to do is strike quickly. They ought to hit the South while they have this huge advantage. And yet McClellan didn't. And initially, people who trusted McClellan, that they assumed that he had good reason, that this was part of his strategy. But then as 1861 hit and then the spring came and that's when armies go off to war and then the summer hit, there were still no battles. In fact, in June and July of 1861, by when, when by all accounts McClellan should have been leading his men into battle, he was in D.C. going to meetings, kind of parading around. And the men who supported his taking over that command started to question him and p- apply pressure to Lincoln more and more. And eventually, I think it was in August of 1861, Lincoln went out and he played, paid McClellan a, a visit. And part of what it seems like all sources agree on Lincoln was that he was not a micromanager. He was an empowering leader. Later, when he would put Ulysses S. Grant in charge, he would simply say to him, you just tell me what you need. I'll stay out of your way. And so he went out to meet with McClellan, not in any way to to meddle, but just to genuinely ask the question so that he could portray it back to his people. And he asked the question, so so when are you going to attack? What are you thinking? What's, What's the strategy? And McClellan's reply was simple. I need more men. 
I need more supplies. Lincoln took that answer back to Washington, and people began to cynically say, McClellan's strategy for winning the Civil War is to amass such a large army with such a great advantage in supplies that the South will surrender from pure, pure intimidation. They started to call him the pacifist commander. But Lincoln stood by him, and winter hit, and there had been no battle, and there was more and more pressure, and there was more and more conflict. And McClellan started to show some cracks. We now have a letter, a letter that McClellan wrote to his wife in, in late 1861, early 1862. And in the letter, he tells his wife, listen, I've got so much power, I think I could become dictator of this nation. One of Lincoln's aides has been captured as, as saying that, that McClellan, he looked good on a horse, and ultimately what he wanted was to be president. Eventually, he did lead. In the spring of 1862, he did lead his men into a battle. It was in Yorktown. We know historically that McClellan outnumbered the South 10 to 1, and he didn't win. The South was creative. They moved soldiers around the lock. They took tree logs and painted them to look like soldiers. And, and more than anything else, what was exposed there was that McClellan was afraid. People who watched and, and, and observed what was going on noticed McClellan didn't lead his men into battle. He stood in the back and kind of pointed. He was terrified. And when word got back to Lincoln that this is what had happened, he, he knew he had to go out and pay him another visit, and so he did. And one morning, Lincoln, along with one of his personal aides, got up before the sun rose. They climbed a hillside. They watched the sun come up, and as the sun was coming up, they watched this massive army come to life, men emerging from tents. And in this iconic moment, Lincoln looked, his aide's name, his aide's name was Hatch, and he said, Hatch, what is this? What is this? And Hatch said, well, Mr. Lincoln, this is the North's army. And Lincoln said, no hatch. This is McClellan's personal bodyguard. He went home, and two weeks later, he, he replaced McClellan. But I think it raises some really big questions, questions that I think we're facing in this moment. Like, what, what does it mean to be generous, and what does it mean to be greedy? What does it mean to live for others? And what does it mean to live for ourselves? What, what if what McClellan got terribly wrong was he thought that army was for him? And in fact, he's a public servant. His job was to take the interest of others, not his own. You know, greed is a tricky thing. It's something that was just as prevalent in Jesus' day as it is in our own. In fact, one day, Jesus was, was doing his thing. He was hanging out with people. He was teaching. And this, this argument erupted off to the side. There was a, a couple brothers, both at Winco, and there was only one roll of toilet paper left. I mean, it's not actually what happened, but it's actually really similar. And they said to Jesus, hey, would you intervene? Would you be judge and jury and decide who gets the right to this? And Jesus refused. You can read about this in Luke 12. Maybe you can do that when we're done. Jesus is like, no, I'm not... I'm not going to meddle in that conversation, or at least not directly. And what he did is he launched into a story, because that's what great teachers do. And here's the story. Jesus said this. It says, then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. Somebody's got a lot. Somebody's got more than most. 
And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Now, one of the questions I've always had about this story, and I've never found a commentator that's clarified it for me, is is Jesus being obtuse to the extent that his original audience would have went, wait a minute, that doesn't happen. Like, pigs don't fly. Like, like farmers in, in, in the ancient Near East, they don't have such a huge crop that suddenly they start wondering what they're supposed to do with it. I, I don't know, because it gets even more weird. He says, then he said to himself, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So I've never farmed a day in my life. I've hung out on the Durga farm for a couple days and realized I've never worked a day in my life in comparison to farmers. But to me, it seems absurd that anybody would go, I've got so much that I'm going to tear down my storage shed and build a bigger one. Wouldn't you just build a second one? Which to me makes makes me think that what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's saying something absurd to make a radical point. And then he says this, and I will say to my soul, which maybe has a resonance that it didn't have as little as a week ago, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Remember what Jesus is doing here is exposing a really terrible strategy for living. In fact, watch what he does. But God said to him, you fool, This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, I think in the last hundred years we're guilty of making this, wanting this story to be about heaven and hell and where we go when when we've died, and I frankly don't think Jesus has that in mind at all. What's What's he doing here? What's he trying to expose here? Was Jesus a moral teacher whose chief concern was to make sure that you could pass the test that allows you to go to heaven when you die? Right, wrong, good, bad, black, white. Was that what he was doing? No, of course it wasn't. What were his claims? I come that you may have life and have it to the, to the full. It's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Rethink your plans for living because there's a whole new opportunity available. Remember, what Jesus was claiming was that he had the superior way to live emotionally, spiritually, relationally today. What if what Jesus is doing here, therefore, is saying, listen, that guy's strategy is going to lead to his being a miserable person. Total loss is what lies in front of him. Not from a moralistic standpoint from a it doesn't work standpoint from a from like the math doesn't work what if what Jesus is reminding us here is listen I can teach you a better way to live look how he closes it so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God Listen, I think we have this remarkable opportunity right now to ask this question speaking of coronavirus What does it mean to be generous? What does it mean to to buy into a whole worldview, a whole way of living that says when you find your life, you lose it? Which again, isn't a threat. It's an observation. It doesn't work. And when you lose your life, when you find a way to live other than for yourself, you're alive. Remember, Jesus' Jesus' way, it's not circumstantial. He talks about building your house on the rock versus the sand. He's always claimed that that his way works no matter your economic condition, no matter your continent, no matter your era. What he's saying is there's the way of generosity and there's the way of greed. Or, Or put it 
The way Rabbi Daniel Lappin says that you can be among the givers in the world or you can be among the takers. And I wonder if one of the real dangers for those of us who have hung around church for years, maybe even for decades, is that at some point when you're in high school, when you're in college a few years ago, you, you develop this definition of generosity and that's, that's served God very well. And yet I wonder if one of the dangers is we just plug and play old definitions and instead we got to slow down and go, what does it look like in this context? What does it look like to live for yourself and what does it look like to live for others when you pull up to the grocery store? I mean, I, I wonder if generosity right now looks like buying a week's worth of groceries, not two months, if for no other reason than, than to do your part in tempering the, the fear and anxiety that's just taking over. I wonder if to be generous in this context means even though you can get it cheaper from Amazon that, that, that you go buy it locally so that you can support local business in a season that's incredibly difficult. I, I wonder if the same thing might imply to, to eating out, though that, that may not be our normal routine. I, I wonder, Hannah's YWCA thing, how ironic a culture that's falling victim to some rhetoric that says we're going to run out of food, how ironic to go, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some of what I have to somebody else. What, what does it mean to be generous in this particular situation, in these times? And what if as Christ followers, we can step into what we know works and pull away from what we know doesn't? You know, another question that I think is important to ask, and I'm, I'm indebted to Andy Stanley for this, is this question of why, why is Christianity still around? Maybe we do well to zoom out and go, how did it make it? Because things that generally make it in the world, movements that make it, they generally either have political power backed by a large military or social power backed by a large volume of people. Christianity in the early days had neither of those. Very few people from a very minor part of the empire with no buildings, no wealth, almost nothing. And yet here we are 2,000 years later doing this from our, from our living room. What, what did Christianity have? Well, what they had was a, was a rabbi who asked really radical questions and exposed the cracks of empire. Liberaltas, which I'm sure I'm not pronouncing correctly, it was the, it was the Latin word for the Roman mantra. Liberaltas was on, their, it was on their coins. When emperors would visit a city, they would throw coins that said Liberaltas, and the crowds would scream, Liberaltas, Liberaltas. And what it means is tit for tat. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We take care of each other. It's why in the Roman Empire it was such a terrible, vulnerable thing to be an orphan or a widow. Why if you were physically unable, it was, it was a death sentence because they took care of those who took care of them and vice versa. And Jesus showed up and he started asking these incredibly radical questions. Questions like, well, is it really love if, if, you, love those who, if you only love those who love you back? Is it really generous if you're given to people who are going to give back to you? In fact, what if rather than doubling down on our enemies, what if we were to pray for our enemies? And some would say it was Jesus' radical teaching that, that flipped the way culture thinks on its head. You know, we, we take some of these values for granted in the way we think about welfare and charity and giving. So some, some of this is a little bit more intuitive to us and we assume it's always been intuitive to humanity, but history tells, no, that's not the case. 
There's a point where history pivoted. It was around the person of Jesus who started to go, wait a minute. Maybe for yourself isn't the best way to live. You know, when the Romans needed to build an army, they didn't put up billboards and compelling signs inviting young kids on the adventure of the military. What the Romans did was they, they would conquer a city and then they would take as prisoner all the able-bodied men, boys and, and young men. And generally what they would have to do is they'd have to put them in, in a prison of some sort until they, they had time to train these slaves, soldiers, to, to be soldiers rather. That, that was, that's how they built an army. So in the late 200s, the Romans showed up in a city of Thebes and conquered said city. They did what they always do. They took the, young, the boys and the young men and they threw them in jail to hold them until they could train them to be soldiers. And then a famine hit. Kind of ironic, huh? Not that I'm suggesting there's a famine, but there was, there was mass hysteria. It became everybody for themselves. People who could afford to left that village to go to a place where it was more safe. But nobody thought to open the lock on the jail. What, what would generally happen is those young boys would starve to death. But there was one particular tribe of people who stayed in town. They, they, they were followers of Jesus. And they would sneak at night to the jail and, and they would offer these, these young boys food. There was no program. There was no cafeteria. This is how they would survive. And, and some of them... Some of them started to ask questions. Who are you? Why are you doing this? One of them was a, was a young boy named Pacomius. And Pacomius, as much as he could from, from, from a cell, began to learn about Jesus and this way of generosity and this radically different approach to living than what the Roman Empire was propagating. And he vowed to himself that if he ever got out of the army, if he got out alive, he would come back to that very city and he would study with these very people and he would learn more about this Jesus. Well, of course, the famine ended. The boys survived. They were eventually taken for training. And I don't know the details, but at some point, Pacomius, he became free. And, and he stayed true to himself. He went back to that city. He studied under these people. He became a follower of Jesus. And actually, he... He, became, he, he eventually went to North Africa where, where he studied under some famous men like I think Antony was one of them. He became an early leader of the monastic movement and, and our Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, they know him as Saint Pacomius. See, generosity changed the world once. Especially Western history pivots on Generosity. And I think the question that I want to pose to, to myself, to you, to us, is what, what happens if one person at a time, a community of people made this decision to once again live from a place of generosity? What happens if once again we lean into the, the ancient truths around manna that said, listen, 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 God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, I don't have to hoard who can I serve? Listen, I, I'm so thankful that, that scientists are working really, really hard on the coronavirus. I'm so thankful that world leaders and health officials are, are working around the clock to help navigate us through this. 
But I wonder if we also do well to remind ourselves that, that we have a role too. And, and part of that role is, is what's always been the, the counterintuitive way of generosity. You know, I, I've been doing some work on my anxiety stuff and one of the things that I've identified is that obsessive testing, which you can probably only understand if you have anxiety, but the sense of like, am I okay, am I okay, am I okay, that that's a part of the problem, just constantly checking in. Maybe you can relate. You wake up, am I, how do I feel, how do I feel, how do I feel? It's this self-fulfilling prophecy. And I was processing that with my spiritual director last Monday, actually, and, and he said, Adam, it's funny, because you're talking about obsessive testing, but I've also heard you reference the faithfulness of God several times in this conversation. So I wonder, could you just flip the script? Could you just obsess on the faithfulness of God? Return to the wisdom of the manna and just lean in to a God who says, go the way of generosity. So here's my, here's my question. What does it look like for you to do the counterintuitive, countercultural thing right now called Generosity. And how can we as a community serve our greater community by demonstrating generosity in the way that we navigate these waters? Listen, I, I so wish I was praying with you in person. And again, please, if, if a phone conversation would, if you're up for it, we as a staff would just love to connect with you on the phone. You can email me at info, but... Tommy and Teresa are also going to lead us in a really awesome song. So I'd like to pray for you and, and we'll transition into that. God, as we think of our friends and really our families scattered across the city, across the state, across, I mean, frankly, there's, we have friends across the country and the world. We, Lord, we're, we're not doing the video thing because we're, we're trying to be hip and new. We're doing it because we're, we're trying to be good stewards of what does it mean to serve one another. And so God, I pray that your presence with us would be tangible. I pray for my friends, some of whom are navigating, like how do I pay the rent in a week? And others who are navigating the, the very illness itself, God, would you remind us that, that you're faithful? Uh, that your system, your way, your life is not circumstantially dependent that the way of generosity, it works. The cruciform life, it, it works. We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.